Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Kev knows how to talk, you know. He's anyway. Good to be with you, friends. Hey, you know, with the Choice One baby bottle, you wouldn't believe it. Last the last bunch of years, there the budget from the resources that come in through change is about $40,000 a year that comes in through change. Not from our church, but from all the churches that are doing it. So believe it or not, it's, that's a key part. I think that's like 12% of their annual budget per year. So it's a pretty key thing. So uh, believe it or not, the little bit you put in and change, it makes a huge difference. Well, good friends, it's good to be with you. Uh, let me throw a couple of other things out at you. Last night's Seder was so much fun. Uh, if you came, let me just say this. I, I thought I had it all planned. We're going to be fine. Everything will be great. I got it all organized. I even had pictures of how to set things up. And then like at 5.15, it just became mayhem. And, and it was awesome. Uh, I, I really, usually I, like, I don't like it. I just want to go to a beach somewhere and, and forget everything. But man, it was, it was just so great. Everyone's running around doing all sorts of things. So thank you if you were one of those people running around doing all sorts of things. It was just a lot of fun. Uh, and it got me thinking, I cannot wait till June 27th, because on June 27th, 32 of us here from Calvary Mercer are going to be going to Israel uh, for a 12-day trip uh, to Israel. And I felt like this was just a little taste of how awesome that trip is. So uh, I throw it out there. There's still time. If you want to sign up, you want to join the trip, you can get on that trip. Talk to me afterwards. Uh, we, we definitely have three more seats available on the plane, and there's probably more than that. So if you would like to come, uh, we can get you in that trip. So think about that. Talk to me if you would like to. And one last thing, you'll notice on your Easter card, I want to make sure you realize we're doing three services Easter Sunday instead of our normal two, and the timing is a little different. So there's a, I don't even know, eight? There's, there's an eight, 9.30, and 11. Okay, so a little bit different than normal, and there's children's uh, church during the middle service, that 931. Okay, so please keep that in mind. We are in the book of Matthew today, so you can turn there. Matthew chapter 28 is where we have left off. We've been working our way through this book for quite a while now, and we have finally made it to our last study in the book of Matthew. I finally made it to our last study. Don't clap yet. All right, at the end, we'll do our little clap thing. We were in Nepal recently, and we had studied through the entire book of 1 Corinthians doing a pastor's conference there. And when we came to the end of the book, I was saying to the guys, uh, you know, back in, in our church in the United States, we, we have this little tradition. And Dan was like, we have a tradition? Like, you Mally, like, we do? And I was like, yes, we do, Dan. You know, and so uh, that is we, we give like a big cheer or something at the end. So when we get done today, be ready. We're going to do a big cheer, a uh, big clap. We have been in this book, I don't know if you remember, but since August of 2015, August of 2015, so 65 studies. Today is our 65th study of the book of Matthew. And, and my heart's desire when we started our study is, and you may recall we put a little slide up at one, a few times, was falling in love with Jesus all over again that we would sort of just see Jesus in, sort of fre in a fresh light, in a fresh way, that perhaps our familiarity with him, our familiarity with the gospel, is we've kind of, oh, yeah, another miracle. You know, no, another miracle. This is remarkable. And look at the way this guy loves people. And look at the way that he interacts with people and heals and teaches. And so the Lord has been gracious to me, and he has ministered that to my heart. Hopefully you've come along for the ride, but I've just been blessed to look at Christ 
in a fresh way again these last two years. And so uh, praise the Lord for that. If you haven't done so, turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. In our last study, we finished up chapter 27 and we did a portion of chapter 28. And we learned some things about the resurrection of Jesus Christ in those passages. So we had been spending time looking at his arrest, his various trials, his scourging, his beating, and so on. We spent some time considering the crucifixion itself. And then the last time we were together, we we saw that uh, there were two men. There were Nicodemus and uh, Joseph of Arimathea and how they took the body of Jesus. They got permission from Pilate to take the body of Jesus and to bury Jesus's body there before the Sabbath. And so in our study last week, we learned three things from Matthew 27. As I mentioned, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus and how they buried the body at a nearby tomb, uh, what had become a tomb. It was Joseph's tomb. We saw how Mary, the two Marys, observed where they put the body of Jesus. And then we saw that the Jewish council, this was on the Saturday, Jesus crucified on the Friday, on the Saturday that the Jewish council made their way to Pilate and sought permission to have a special guard, a special guard that would seal the tomb. They would put that rope across it, seal it with wax, put the Roman insignia there so that nobody would move the stone so that Jesus wouldn't be able to get out and disciples wouldn't be able to get in. And we saw that at the end of Matthew 27. In the beginning of Matthew 28, we saw that on Sunday, so Friday, Saturday, now we're on Sunday, that the two Marys return. They're going to prepare Jesus' body more thoroughly for burial. It was a quick preparation previously. They're going to spend some more time preparing his body with spices. We see that they get there and they discover that the stone has been rolled away. And they had been asking themselves, who's going to roll away the big stone? I'm not going to do it. You're not going to do it. But but the angel stepped in and did so. And that the angel began to speak to them and said to them that they should go and that they should tell the disciples that Jesus had risen. And then finally, we saw that as they went, that they encountered Jesus. And Jesus began to minister uh, to them. The last thing that we looked at in Matthew 28. I mean, you probably wonder, why did I come last week if you're going to tell me everything we studied this week? But it's a context. The last thing that we studied was that the, when the Roman soldiers kind of uh, woke up, revived from either fainting or going into shock, whatever it may be, from seeing the angel, that they went to the council and they said, hey, this is what we saw. And the council uh, agreed to give them lots of money that they would not tell other people uh, what it is exactly that we saw. Now, that's what Matthew tells us. The other Gospels, I gave you a homework assignment. Did anybody do the homework assignment? Thank you, Ann. You're my favorite student in the class. All right, very good. The, the, you can still do it. You have plenty of time uh, today. You have to do it today, though, uh, to get credit. But anyhow, it was to go to the other Gospels and try to piece the story all together. Because Matthew gives us what Matthew gives us from his vantage point, that which he deemed was necessary for, under, to, for us to understand the resurrection and the instructions that would follow that. The other Gospels, though, give us some additional information. So we have two slides that I want to show you. This one here is what we learned from Matthew. You can see all the Matthew on the side, the references on the side. Throw up the next one here. You're probably not going to be able to read it, but you begin to get an idea. You see where you start to see the blue enter in? This is what we learned from Luke and what we learned from John. There's another, I believe, slide as well. And see, now you see all of the blue there. So if you go to those other Gospels, you begin to get a greater sense of the fuller picture. And it seems as if as we go through those, and I, and I suspect if we all do it, 
Ours are all going to be a little bit different. We're going to say, I think this goes in here. No, it doesn't go in there. It goes in here. And so we do the best we can. But we get this picture, a fuller picture, by looking at each of the Gospels. And so here's what we know. Here's the full picture. It's on Friday that Joseph and Nicodemus are given permission to bury Jesus' body. It's on Saturday that a special guard is assembled to seal the tomb. It's on Sunday that the two Marys return with the body, uh, with spices to prepare the body, and that they encounter this angel. And Luke tells us that they discover that there's no longer a body there in the tomb, and that the angel then gives them instructions to go and tell the disciples, which they do, Luke tells us. Now, here comes the material that Matthew doesn't give to us. The Gospel of John tells us that the women tell, go and tell Peter and John what they're supposed to do, Peter and the other disciples, in particular Peter and John, that Peter and John race to the tomb, they discover Jesus' body is there, and that Mary seemingly comes behind them. She's running behind them and arrives at the tomb while they are there. John 20, verses 8 and 9 tells us that Peter and John leave the tomb, convinced that the body's not in there, but not necessarily convinced that Jesus rose from the dead. So, Yep, the women were right. Nobody in there. Now, what does that mean? And they begin to go away to, to ponder that. And then we learn in John 20, 15, with Peter and John gone, that Mary encounters Jesus and believes initially that he's the gardener. She says, you know, sir, tell me where the body is. I'll go get it. I'll carry it home. And then eventually Jesus says to her, Mary. And perhaps Jesus said her name in a particular way. I don't know. But she knows immediately that it's the Lord. Luke then picks up, tells us Mary returned once again to all of the disciples and explained these things. This is roughly the same time that the guards are telling the the council about what happened. And then presumably while Mary is meeting with the disciples now for a second time, that's when Jesus meets with those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. You see all this stuff that is happening in, in the span of of this little bit of time period that Matthew doesn't give us. So there's a whole bunch of things that are going on. But it seems as if Mary is meeting with the disciples and Jesus is meeting with those two disciples on the road uh, to Emmaus, where he reveals himself that Sunday afternoon. And then finally, we know it is Sunday evening that Jesus appears to the 10 disciples in Jerusalem. Judas is not there. He went out and killed himself. And Thomas is not there with them. But Jesus appears to those 10 disciples, and then eight days later, he appears to the 11 disciples, Thomas there with them, again in Jerusalem. So there's a whole bunch going on between chapter 28, verse 15, and chapter 28, verse 16 in the book of Matthew. And that's why I gave you the homework assignment. If you didn't do it, you need to do it. Let me read our passage. Verses 16 to 20. In Matthew says this, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Now, it's encouraging. Verse 16 is encouraging because the disciples do what they had been commanded to do. Remember, Jesus had told Mary to tell the disciples to go to Galilee, and there he would meet them. It doesn't seem they listened to Mary because they don't go there, and so Jesus meets them in Jerusalem 
first on that Sunday afternoon, and then again eight days later, he meets them in Jerusalem. So for whatever reason, they're not going to Galilee as they were told to do so. But here we read now in verse 16 that they will eventually make their way. It says the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Now remember, Jesus and almost all of his disciples, with the exception of Judas, are from the area of Galilee. Galilee's not a city, Galilee's a region in and around uh, northern Israel. And so these disciples are from that particular area. That's where they had encountered Jesus. Remember, a few of them were out fishing, and Jesus comes up onto the edge of the shore. And so he had done the vast majority of his ministry is in the Galilee region. As far as chapters in the Gospels, many of them are down in Jerusalem. That's covered in the Gospels. But the vast majority of time Jesus spent was in the region of Galilee. And that's where he was teaching his disciples and doing the ministry, much of the ministry that he was doing. And so familiar ground for the disciples. And so perhaps they went to a familiar place, you know, their little spot out there on one of the hills that surround the area of the Galilee. And there, things, uh, he begins to minister to them. Now, we know some other things occurred. John chapter 21 speaks of an early morning fish breakfast. That sounds terrible uh, to me, but apparently they liked it. Uh, So they have this early morning fish breakfast. We read that in John chapter 21. Also in John chapter 21, we read of a private meeting that Jesus had with Peter, just the two of them. Peter, do you love me? You know that I like you, Lord. No, no, do you love me? Lord, I'm affectionate for you. Lord, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know all things. You know I'm a mess. You know I blew it. You know I, I strayed from you. You know where my heart is. And Jesus restores Peter, John 21, 15 to 19. First Corinthians chapter 15, Paul tells us that it's during this time frame that Jesus appears to over 500 disciples at one time. We don't read anything about it in the Gospels, but Paul tells us that that event occurs somewhere during this particular time frame. So there's a number of things that are happening, just as there were a number of things happening before that Matthew doesn't give us. There's a number of things that are happening after that Matthew doesn't give us uh, as well. But you have these appearances. Now, it's significant to know that Jesus appeared to over 500 people at one time. It would be significant that he appeared to over to 11 or 12 people at one time, but he appears to over 500 people. And here's why it's significant. Some would suggest that the disciples were in such a state, emotionally, their best buddy had just died, this one that they loved, the one that they thought was the Messiah. They had seen all of this. It was a shocking experience. They were filled with fear that they were in this place where they didn't actually see Jesus. They didn't actually interact with Jesus, but they hallucinated what they saw. Now, folks that do this sort of thing, psychiatrists, psychologists, I don't know, somebody that does this sort of thing, they will tell you that might be the case if it was one person that saw Jesus. So if it was just Mary, if Mary was the only one ever that had seen the risen Lord, we might be able to say, you know what, poor Mary, emotional state, she hallucinated the whole thing. But 500 people don't hallucinate the same thing at the same time unless LSD is being passed around. All right, so 500 people being in that experience receiving this interaction with the Lord is an actual event that takes place here. And so these are not hallucinations, but actual appearances, actual interactions. And verse 17 of the chapter says that when the disciples saw Jesus, it's not the first time they saw him, but when they see him in this particular instance here, it says in verse 17 that they worshiped him that they worshiped him. 
And remember, worship is far more than the songs that we sing. Worship can happen during the songs that we sing. It doesn't always happen, even though we call it worship. We're going to have a time of worship now. It doesn't always happen necessarily. But worship is something that happens outside of the singing time as well. And so it's not surprising that these folks see Jesus. They're interacting with Jesus. Jesus, no doubt, is teaching them and explaining things to them. And so it's not surprising that they worship him because isn't that what, ha- isn't that what happens in our life? When we come into the presence of the Lord, now certainly we know that the Lord is omnipresent. So the Lord is everywhere we go. But what I mean by that when I say we come into his presence or when we pray, you know, Lord, we just invite your presence in a special way into this particular time. I think Jay even today mentioned, Lord, we're thankful for your presence here this morning. What we're talking about is in a special way where there's a sense of his presence in this place. There's a sense of his working in my life in that particular moment. Special times when we get a glimpse of his goodness. And it just sort of floods our heart, a glimpse of his glory. And our hearts respond in those instances by worshiping. Because really, what else is there to do? It's in those times when we realize in a fresh way his love for the unlovely that our hearts begin to swell. Particularly when you realize you're the unlovely. And yet the Lord still loves you. And you know that. And your heart begins to just enlarge and you find yourself saying, Lord, you are just altogether different from me. You're altogether altogether different from anybody that I know. You're good. And you begin to worship him. It's in those times when we see that the Lord is sovereign over circumstances that our hearts are compelled to worship the Lord. We say, Lord, I don't know what's going on with the circumstances, but I trust you. Because I see that you're sovereign, I see that you're in control, and I know that you can be trusted, our hearts begin to worship. It's when we discover the truth. Now, we can read it in a page, but it's when we discover the truth of a verse, like, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for I know that you are with me. It's when the circumstances of life bring us to that place, and we know that he is with us in that place, that our hearts begin to worship him. And so it's no different from what the disciples are experiencing here. They're in a circumstance, they're in a place where the knowledge of the Lord is too wonderful to contain. And all they are left with doing is worshiping. David describes it this way. In Psalm 139, he said, Oh Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Lord, you are so aware of who I am in the very depths of my being. How can I not worship you? He continues, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Now notice these words, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Have you ever been there in your walk with the Lord? I have. And many of you I know have. You're just not Pentecostal this morning and you're not answering me. But I know that many of you have. It's when there is an awareness of God's presence and God's work in our lives. That's what David is describing. And it leaves us in this place of wonder and worship. And so you have these disciples. They're seeing, they're interacting with Christ in his resurrected body. They are fully aware of what Christ went through 
just days or, or weeks maybe at the most earlier that he was once dead and now he is alive and interacting with them. They are aware of, they're realizing the reality that because he lives, they know that one day they too will live on eternally. And so again, the response is to worship him. Now, I pointed this out, I think it was last week, that Mary, you may recall with Mary, she fell down at the feet of Jesus and worshiped him, and that Jesus received that worship. And we, looked, we talked about other examples in the scripture where people would fall down either before uh, humans, prophets, or things like that, or they'd fall down before angels, and they would worship those servants of God. And each time, the prophet, the angel, whomever, they would say, no, don't do that. But here Jesus, in, in the case with Mary, receives their worship. In the instance that we have here, Jesus receives their worship. There are those that will tell you, yes, I understand, this is what they'll say, I understand that people believe that Jesus is God, but Jesus never said that he was God. People will tell you that. Don't believe that lie. His act of receiving their worship without putting a stop to it would be blasphemous if it were not true. And so the very fact that he continues to receive it, he is either an evil man doing what he should not be doing, or he's God in the flesh. And so he receives their worship. Well, some will say, well, they may have worshiped him, but that was never what Jesus intended. They were just misguided disciples. Again, the reality is the fact that he receives their worship is statement enough Now notice Matthew adds in verse 17, but some doubted. There are different words in the Greek language for doubt, sort of degrees of doubt. This particular word that is being used here is not designed to communicate that there were some that are looking at the risen Lord, standing there in front of them, interacting with them, and that there were some that said, that's Jesus, risen again from the dead, but that there were others that said, no, that's not Jesus, risen again from the dead. What's trying to be communicated here is this sense of there were some that that were there that were saying, this is too good to be true. So you believe it, but there's a part of it that this is too good to be true, this is unbelievable, this is amazing. It's a word, distazo, and it's meant to denote uh, not settled unbelief, but uncertainty and hesitation. Almost like Thomas had that doubting. His doubting went to this degree of, I won't believe unless I can put my hand in in his side and his fingers uh, and his uh, wrist and so on. That was more of a settled belief until I can. These guys here, there's an uncertainty, there's a hesitation. It's the verb that is used. And again, for those guys here, they didn't read Matthew 27 and 28. They didn't read Luke 3 and 24, Mark 16, John chapter 20 and 21. And so no doubt there is a, this is too good to be true. This is unbelievable. I wish sometimes we could like clear our mind and reread the Gospels in a fresh way all over again. Because we get so familiar with it, like, well, how could they not believe that he rose again from the dead? You probably wouldn't have either initially. You would have struggled with it as well. So we understand how they're having a little trouble comprehending all of this. Let's move on to verse 18. Turn to your neighbor and say, we're going to move on to verse 18. Excellent. You ever say I'm Michael Jr.? My neighbor doesn't even go to this church. Anyway, yeah, it's funny if you listen to him. And moving on, verse 18 and 20. Some of perhaps the most well-known verses in the New Testament. I'll read them to you. Jesus came and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Well-known verses. Some of you may have memorized them. The what we have come to know as the Great Commission. The Great Commission, Jesus' command. Very important that you understand that it is a command, not a suggestion, not an idea, but Jesus' command that his followers are to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. That's the Great Commission. It's, and it's Jesus' command that his disciples would do that. Go, therefore, into all the world and proclaim, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, to proclaim the Gospels. You know, you might, be able, you might look at the story of the life of Christ and think that his mission came to an end when Jesus died. The reality, his mission didn't come to an end when Jesus died. His mission was magnified after his death. Remember, when Jesus ministered, he primarily ministered there in the area of Galilee. Made his way down to Jerusalem as well. But he never, outside of when he was a little boy, never left Israel. All of his ministry was there. It was primarily amongst the Jewish people. Now he's telling his disciples, after his death, it doesn't end with his death, now he's telling his disciples, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. So the ministry is magnified after his death. It doesn't come to a halt because of his death. Jesus begins, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And the instructions that follow, because all authority has been given to him, the instructions that follow are more than a suggestion, and they're more than an idea, but they're an authoritative command from our commander. All authority has been given to me. I'm the commander. Now go, Jesus says. Not suggestion, not an idea. Jesus is Lord. And those who follow him, those who profess to be his followers, are his subjects. How do you like hearing that? I don't like it. I'll be quite frank. I don't like being called a subject to anybody. And even as I write it down, I'm like, oh, I don't like that. But that's the truth. If indeed I'm buying into what the scripture teaches, he's commander and I'm his subject. And he has commanded me to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel as he has commanded you as his followers. So when he commands, it's our obligation to respond in obedience. So let's look at the command. Verse 19 says, go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teach them to observe all that I command. So you'll see there's a, it's a fourfold command that he gives, a command that his disciples would, number one, go. Jesus says, go therefore. Secondly, that they would make disciples of all nations. Third, that they would baptize those disciples. And then finally, number four there, that they would teach those disciples. Okay, go, make disciples, baptize those disciples, teach those disciples. I want to go through those point by point. The first important point that needs to be made is that these instructions were not solely for this select group of 11 men. So Jesus wasn't telling these 11 men what they were supposed to be doing, or perhaps there was more people there on the mountain as well. He wasn't just telling them, those that were assembled there, with Jesus, but these are instructions for Jesus' disciples for all time and in all places. So if you are a follower of Christ this morning, these are instructions for you, okay? If you're a follower of Christ this morning, these are instructions for you. So a lot of times we hear a message and we think, yeah, that's really good. I can't wait for Sally. I'm going to tell Sally about that message. 
something like this about missions. We sit, we hear, and we think, you know what, Lord, raise up one of our young people to go. You shouldn't be thinking that. You should be thinking, Lord, would you have me to go? This isn't a message for somebody else. It's a message for you. And so let's all dial in and hear what the Lord might be saying. Jesus says, go therefore, because all authority has been given unto me, go therefore. Let me put it another way, a little less friendly. Jesus says, you are to go because I told you to go. But Lord, can we talk about this? You are to go because I told you to go. It's like Jesus working with his toddler. You just do what I told you to do, and we'll talk about it later when you're 20. As to why I put those rules in place. You are to go because I told you to go. I think that's a very important lesson that we all need to nail down in our walk with Jesus. This isn't one of those, well, you have your walk, I have my walk. This is something we all need to nail down in our walk with Jesus. And that is that the follower of Christ is no longer the one that is to be in control of their own lives. If you are a follower of Christ, you are no longer to be the one in control of your life. We think that we should be, but the reality is all authority hasn't been given to us. All authority has been given to him. So if he says go, we are to go. And I think too often as believers, we have this mindset that, Lord, you know what? I have a lot of respect for you. Feel free to recommend anything you think would be good for me, and I'll take it into consideration. I think we have that mindset. Now, you you say, no, that's not me. Let's look at your life and look at your pattern in your life. You're probably thinking here, not a safe place today. I don't feel comfortable or whatever. But it's something that we need to hear. We have this mindset the Lord can recommend, but if he begins to command, well, then he's stepping way over the line. And again, we may not come out and say that, but sometimes the way we respond to his leading in our lives sure gives the impression that that's what we believe. And so the Lord says, go, and we might respond, well, Lord, this is not a good time for me. Or we respond and say, sure, Lord, I'll go. Here's a list of possible locations that I would be open to going to, and usually... Waikiki Beach, you know, they they need the Lord there, Tahiti, something like that. But imagine if a military private responded in this way. Commander comes, private, here are your orders to go to this location. Private responds, ooh, I'm sorry, General, that doesn't work for me. But I would be open to go, you know, if we responded, that would be ridiculous. This is what the Apostle Paul said. He said, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. I think we would all do well to embed that truth into our thinking because each of us that name the name of Christ are not our own. We've been bought with a price. We're servants of the king, and we are to go where he leads us to go. And so that's the first point here. Because he has the authority, we are to take heed and submit to that authority. Uncomfortable to hear, isn't it? Nobody wants to shake their head, you know, one way or the other. Certainly it is. The walk with Christ isn't the most comfortable thing in the whole world. There's a lot of dying to self that has to take place. That's what it is to be a Christian, is dying to self. And that's not always a comfortable thing. But every time we do so, we end up in a place that we're far better off in our walk. We're far more satisfied in who we are as human beings because that's what God created us to do. And so it's not always comfortable to hear, and our flesh rebels against it, but sometimes a doctor needs to give us some medicine. 
that's not so comfortable to take. And so he does so. Now, there's a second point that's related to this going in response to his command. Again, we, and that is that we go forth in his authority. And so all authority has been given unto me. You are therefore to go. So the second point is that when we go, we go forth in his authority. If we had to go forth in our authority, I wouldn't feel too confident about our chances. And so we go to some foreign country, for instance, and we step on the scene, and yeah, we're here from the United States, we're here from this church in New Jersey, and we got a message to tell you. Nice to have you. Thanks for coming. You know, who would be impressed by that? We don't go forth in our own authority. We go forth in the authority of Jesus. And so when we go forth, we can be supremely confident because it's his authority that sends us, it's his authority that directs us. It's his authority that enables us. And that takes all the pressure off of you and me. I don't even have, have the pressure of having to come up with a message to share. I just communicate the message that my general gave me. And so all the pressure comes off of us. And as we go, we can go confidently because all authority has been given to him and he has commissioned us. So that's his first idea about authority. The second point I want you to take notice of is the command, go therefore. It's a particular tense in the language which doesn't speak of going once and for all, sort of like, you know, this, I can't wait till July 25th because we're going to go or something. But it, the way that it's, it could be written is as you are going. And I think that is very significant that it is not one big time that I'm going to go and I'm going to do it but it is as I am going. It's not that we're supposed to wait for that big moment to go and do ministry, but rather to be doing ministry as we are going. And if you do, or you are a writer downer, please write that one, that we are to be doing ministry as we are going. What that means is that the normal course of our lives, the normal course of our lives as believers is to be making disciples. Not waiting for the opportunity to go to Nepal or Kenya or Belize or somewhere else in the world, but that the normal course of our lives is to be making disciples. And so when we go to school, we go to school with the intention of making disciples. When we go off to work, we do so with the intention of making disciples. As parents, when we interact with our children, we are on mission to be making disciples. When you go out to get the paper. Anybody read a newspaper anymore? Probably not, but if you, some of you do, all right, and you go out to get your paper, and the chances you might run into the neighbor, you go out to get the paper on mission to make disciples. As you are going, it's a mindset that looks for every opportunity to be on mission. The current buzzword out there today is to be missional, that your life is one of being on mission. Now, I've been on enough short-term mission trips to have had repeated conversations with fellow mission team members, and they'll typically say something like this, man, it is so easy here, fill in the country, in Belize, in Nepal, in Kenya, in Honduras, wherever it is, we've gone all over the world, I forget, as a church. It's so easy here in this particular country to share with people. People here are so open to that as compared to back home. The reason why it's so easy to have that conversation, that they just seem to fall into your lap, is because when you're there, you're on mission. Your mindset is different when you're there. 
Because in your normal course of life, someone will say, and they'll grab their hair and their head, and they'll say, life is just confusing. I wish my life had sense of, a sense of meaning and purpose. I wish I knew why I was even here on this earth. And your response is something like, hey, good luck with that. All right? Here in America. Because you got somewhere to be. You got to get back to, from break and get back to work. You got to get back from lunch and get back to work. You got to get your kids to the next place that they have to be. And so you're not on mission. And you pat them on the shoulder and wish them well. But when you are overseas on an official mission trip, it's in those instances where we respond, we thank the Lord. Lord, you're dropping this in my lap. This is amazing. Give me the words to speak. And you go for it and you begin to share. Why is it so much easier when you're on an official mission trip? Because you're on mission. And Jesus is calling each of us to be on mission here on this earth. When you're on mission, you wake up and pray fervently for opportunities to communicate the good news and the forgiveness of sins. When you're on mission, you look for every opportunity that may be an open door. And that door might just be cracked a teeny bit, but you get your foot in there and you squeeze in and you start to communicate with people. You get, you're excited about the opportunity. You're cognizant of the fact, I'm leaving here in a week. Time is short. And so you look for every chance that you have. We don't always do that when we're living in our daily lives. Jesus is telling us that we need to be. As you are going, Jesus calls us to be in mission, uh, on mission as we are going. And so I'd encourage you, look at your life, your daily living. Look at it each day as if it is a mission. Make disciples in your home. Raise them up. Be on mission to do that. Be on mission to reach people at your place of work, at the ball field, at the gym, in your neighborhood. Wherever you go, be on mission. And may I do a little more than even just encourage you to think that way. May I remind you that Jesus commands you to do that. So it's not just a good idea. This is what Jesus commands you as his follower. Let the Lord speak to your heart. Now, secondly, Turn to your neighbor and say, man, he's only on the second point. <laughs> Secondly, Jesus commands his, us and as his followers to make disciples of all nations. Followers of Christ, we've been commissioned not to bring an American message that uniquely works for Americans for a distinct time, distinct place in the world. Because as we learn here, the gospel is for all people everywhere. And so the word of God, which communicates the message of the gospel, are the words of eternal life. And that's a message that needs not be altered, not modified for a particular place or time. And here, we know in our nation, we, we see it on the TV and all that kind of stuff. People are modifying this message to fit the times that we live in. People go overseas on missions and they preach a message which has a lot of this in it, but is a message that is unique to the United States, for instance. And that's not what Jesus commands us to do. He says, make disciples of all nations. Now notice that. He says, make disciples of all nations. A lot of times we think of missions as making converts of all nations. We want people to say the prayer. We want to get people to that place where they come forward. And then we can go home and we can put a little newsletter together that says, look at all the people that came to, to faith there and assume that we're done. 
That's not what Jesus says. He doesn't say go make converts of all nations. He says go and make disciples of all nations. So the Great Commission goes beyond evangelism. And what that means is it's not simply enough for us to make converts. Let those converts fend for themselves. We are called as disciples of Christ to be making disciples ourselves. And a disciple, oh, the idea behind a disciple is that of a learner, a student, a follower. Thanks, Rich. That means, you, want to give it to, you got it? That means for us to be, that our mission effort is to be ongoing. It's not just a one and done sort of thing. That it is something that is ongoing. That means we're in this for the long haul. That's why when we go overseas to certain locations, it's very important for us that we can connect with a church whose mission we believe in so that we can put people in a place where we know that they can grow and that they can learn. Ultimately, we leave it to the Holy Spirit, but on the practical human aspect of things, we want to plug people into places where they can grow and they can be discipled themselves. So notice that. Discipleship doesn't just happen. Disciples are made. Jesus says, go and make disciples. That the process of becoming a disciple and making disciples is a process that involves the input of a whole slew of believers. Older people, not in age necessarily, but older folks in the faith who can begin to invest and pour their lives into younger folks in the faith. It's the ministry that Paul describes when he writes to Timothy. Paul says, you then, my child, Paul poured into Timothy, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will also be able to teach others. That's the ministry that Jesus is commissioning to us, to take the things that we have learned from others and pour those into the lives of those that are coming up after us, to make disciples. It's not just something that happens. And again, that's what Jesus is commissioning us to do. So let me ask you this perspective. Again, to be fulfilling this commission, you don't have to go to Kenya or Belize or Nepal or somewhere around the world. You should be fulfilling this commission here in the home, the town you live in. So let me ask you this question. How are you doing raising up the next generation of believers after you? How are you doing fulfilling this aspect of the Great Commission of raising up the next generation of believers after you? Are you taking what you have learned and are learning? Have you taken that which has been entrusted to you and passed that on to others that you have in your life, you have contact with? That's your orders from God. As you are going, make disciples. You can consider, how am I doing in that area? And don't let it beat you down to the sense of, well, I'm a, I'm a louse of a person. Let it just be an indicator. You know, as a school teacher, we give tests. I used to, when, when we would give tests to people. Ultimately, the purpose of a test is to get a kid grounded so they can't go out that weekend. That's, that's why we give them. And we usually give them Thursdays, we grade them, we notify the parents. So the ultimate purpose of a test is to reveal to the teacher where he or she needs to do some reteaching and to reveal to the student where they need to do some relearning. That's really the purpose of it. Unfortunately, it's how we decide whether or not you get to go to college or whatever. But there's really a reason behind it is to reveal. So this is a test for us, for the Lord to reveal to us where are some areas where I'm falling short and I need to kind of get on track with. 
making disciples. Now, Jesus' third command, part of the Great Commission, is to baptize those disciples. It's significant. Speaking to a group, of, a group of Jewish men, Jesus doesn't say, go into all the world and circumcise all the nations. That religion wouldn't expand too much, I would imagine here. But he says to go and to baptize uh, those individuals. It speaks of a clear break from traditional Ju- Judaism. Again, Jesus is earth's ministry primarily amongst Jewish people in Israel, and now he's sending his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, Jews and Gentiles. And he says, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Notice that in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He doesn't say, and go baptize them in the names of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this speaks to the idea of the unity of three persons of the Godhead. They are three, and yet the singular, they are one. Now, the Bible doesn't use the word Trinity. And there are some cult groups that will come and say, you know, the Bible doesn't use the word Trinity. And we know that it doesn't, but it teaches the, the idea of a Trinity. Three distinct persons, but one God. Certainly we know it's a great ministry, a mini, uh, mystery, but here we see it alluded to and spoken of in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says to baptize in that name. And so now part of the discipleship process, Jesus institutes the rite of baptism, the sacrament, if you want to use that particular term. Now a lot of us come from a background where the the church celebrates all sorts of sacraments and so on. We really just see two sacraments in the New Testament. We see baptism and we see communion. I think marriage is a sacrament in the Catholic Church. We believe in marriage, so throw that one in there as well. All right, but the, the New Testament really just teaches about baptism and communion. And we live in a culture where there are a lot of thoughts about baptism that are floating around. It's a phrase, it's an idea that is familiar to many of us. It's not a word. What, what is this baptism you speak of? We know uh, we have some ideas about baptism. There's some things we can glean about baptism from this passage. Notice first, it's disciples that are baptized. So Jesus says, go and make disciples and baptize those disciples. And so we do not baptize infants, or we shouldn't, because an infant can't be a disciple. An infant can't express knowledge of anything. And so we don't baptize infants as some sort of entrance to the faith or some, some way to kind of, if they were to die during, you know, early part of their lives, that they'll be able to go to heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches. And so we don't baptize infants, we baptize disciples, people that can come to an understanding. We're, as missionaries going around the world, we're not called to go to some community and institute a forced baptism of the entire community, which is designed to communicate mass conversions or something like that. And then, you know, now that you've all converted to faith, quote unquote, we'll teach you that's not where the order is wrong. We are to baptize disciples. We are to make disciples and then baptize those disciples. Baptism is an act of publicly identifying with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's an act of publicly identifying for myself. It's a statement to myself. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And it's a statement to the world as well. And that's why we do public baptisms when we do them. It's why we started taking pictures and putting it on Facebook. So now all your friends know that you publicly identified, whether you want them to or not. Now they know. Maybe we shouldn't do that, but whatever. It is what it is. Remind yourself of this. Remember, baptism will never save a person. Baptism will never save a person. 
Baptism is a sign of the salvation a person has already received. So oftentimes we'll say here, baptism is an outward sign of an inward work. The work happens on the inside. Outside is just a demonstration of that. Another thing about baptism, we practice full immersion baptism when possible. Now, Sometimes people are elderly or whatever it may be and they can't go underwater or something like that. When it's possible, we practice full immersion baptism because we see it as a picture of the work that God has done in our lives. And so as that person goes into the water and they go under the water, the idea is that this person died, this person was buried, this person was raised back to life. And that's the picture of what, it, or that is what happens for the person that is a follower of Christ. Paul would say, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, I'll add, and been buried. Behold, all things have become new. And baptism is a wonderful picture of that. And so we do baptisms a variety of different times during the year, typically when it's warmer, uh, summertime or whatever it may be. And if, if you've never been baptized, you can, we can talk about that. But it's for disciples. Now, Jesus commands, as part of the Great Commission then, notice the fourth commandment, teach those disciples all things that I have commanded you. Disciples are made through teaching. Disciples are made through teaching. That's what Jesus modeled. That's what he did for three and a half years with the group of men that he gathered around them, ladies that he gathered around them as well. He taught them. Notice Jesus says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, all that I have commanded you. It's the reason why here at Calvary, we spend the time that we do going verse by verse through the entire scriptures. Because it's our understanding, our philosophy, that the only way that we can honestly say, I have taught you everything, all things that Jesus has commanded us, is to go through all of the scripture. Because believe me, there are parts of scripture that I would like to skip because, you know, it just gets into issues and I don't want to get into an issue with anybody kind of thing. And it's much easier if we just ignore that particular issue and move on to the more fun passages or the more comforting passages. And so we don't leave out any of the scriptures, even those that are hard, because all means all. And it's our responsibility to conform ourselves to his will, not him to our will. As men and women on mission, it's our obligation to present the full counsel of God's word as we go through the process of making disciples. And we do this through the systematic teaching and submission to the word of God. That's what it means to be a disciple. And so these things that we're looking at in these four commands in the Great Commission, it's what we have built our church on. This is what our church is built on. This is what we do and why we do these particular things. We're, it's what we're committed to as a body, individually and corporately. That's what we are committed to. And so we, as we go, we proclaim that there's no other name under heaven, as it says in Acts 4.12, given among men whereby they must be saved. That's the message we proclaim because that's what we believe and know to be true. It's our commitment not just to make disciples, or excuse me, converts, but to train up disciples who like Timothy, would be able to train up people that come after them. That's what we do as a church. As a church, we're resolved to be able to say with the Apostle Paul, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That's our commitment. I'm not sure we're going to get there based on the fact that we did two years in Matthew, but that's our commitment. That's what we're working toward. And we believe it's Jesus' command for us to do. 
And now the most encouraging words maybe of this passage. Look at verse 20. Behold, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. And so not only do we go forth in Jesus' authority, but we go forth with Jesus. I don't know if you've ever been in a circumstance where you're a little nervous and you just say to someone, well, would you go with me? Would you go with me? And then you go together into that instance there. Well, we bring our commander with us. Jesus says, behold, I am with you always. He does not just send us out on our own, but instead he promises his constant presence at all time. And that's incredibly encouraging when the task seems too daunting or when the task seems beyond us. It's incredibly encouraging to know that he has promised to be with us, to guide us, to equip us, to strengthen us. Our job is simply to obey as he directs us. And so, follower of Christ, have you been on mission? You've seen the life of Christ. We've studied through the book. Are you mindful of his commission upon your life to make disciples of all nations? This is not the job of the professionals. Well, we have missionaries that we support to go do that work. This is each one of our jobs. Are you mindful of that reality? And are you yourself growing as a disciple in your knowledge of his will and not just, we don't just do this for knowledge, to get ribbons of your submission to his will, of all those things that, I've, that he has commanded us. It is an incredible privilege that men and women, young people like ourselves, would be commissioned by the king for what he has commissioned us to do. It's an incredible privilege, and we don't take it lightly. And so... As we close out our study of the life of Jesus, as told by Matthew, my prayer has been through this, that our hearts would be captured in a fresh way by the wonder of the workings of our God. And that like the disciples there in Galilee, we would be moved to worship just as they did. That's been my prayer. I'm praying continually that the Lord will continue to do that in each of our hearts. Amen. Would you pray that with me? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. For this study, Lord, what a gift the Word of God is to us. I cannot imagine what our walks would be like if we didn't have access to it. And Lord, we even know today that our, there are some of our brothers and sisters around the world that don't have access to it, or it's a, it's a very limited access with just a few pages or maybe a book of a certain part of the Bible. And so, Lord, we are uh, incredibly grateful. We thank you for the opportunity to look into it this last couple of years and to consider your son. Lord, to try and look at it with fresh eyes and to be blown away just as those that were amongst the Lord were blown away. Lord, I pray that this kind of heavy uh, talk here today, this command that we are to be living our lives on mission, Lord, that that would really take up root in our hearts. It wouldn't be something that we sort of consider for a little while and then we let it fade away or we get busy with other things so that we can block the thought. But Lord, that it would just take up root in our hearts and it would indeed bear much fruit that we would be an on-mission people. And Lord, that you would use us, as Kevin prayed earlier, to reach this community, to reach this state, uh, Pennsylvania, to reach our nation and the world. And Father, we thank you that your son goes with us and that we're not alone in this mission. 
and we rejoice in that truth. And we pray our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.